Hello, and welcome to the National Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. And I'm Daniel Kane. And we are the assistant editors of National Affairs. National Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims to help Americans think a little more clearly about our public life and rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. It is published jointly by National Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we're excited to be joined by Ryan Anderson. Ryan is the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow in American Principles and Public Policy at the Heritage Foundation and the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He is also the founder and editor of Public Discourse, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute of Princeton, New Jersey. He has written numerous books and articles on religious liberty and received his doctoral degree in political philosophy from the University of Notre Dame. For our spring 2020 issue, Ryan wrote an interesting and provocative essay for us titled Proxy Wars Over Religious Liberty. In this piece, Ryan argues that religious Americans too often limit their defense of religious practice to arguments about religious liberty, avoiding the hard work of moral argument and moral formation. Instead, they should be focused on crafting a 21st century case for religious liberty and making the philosophical, theological, and political arguments that will serve evangelization and truth. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, sure thing. Happy to be with you. There's lots of cases we can get into, Ryan, about religious liberty, which is, of course, the focus of your piece. You know, there was the Health and Human Services Contraception Mandate. You know, Little Sisters of the Poor are still fighting that for the Supreme Court. There's also the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And in all these cases, people who are defending religion, they're focusing on the religious liberty argument. But you have an interesting quote in your piece to start off here that says, religious liberty is one human value at stake, but not the only or even the primary one. So to start off here, could you tell us a little bit about what are the other values you're talking about here that we should focus on besides just religious liberty? Sure. I mean, you can think of it this way. If you are a religious person who wants to be exercising your religious liberty, just ask yourself why, to what ends, to what purpose, you know, what are the goods that you're seeking as you exercise your religious liberty? Those are the more foundational things, right? So this is concepts like truth, goodness, beauty, justice, piety. They're all the things that freedom of religion is meant to be at the service of. And so part of what the essay is doing is saying, if we just talk about religious liberty, and that's where our primary focus becomes, and we stop talking about things like truth and goodness and beauty, we're actually going to be woefully diminishing both our public discourse, but then also as a public matter, public policy shouldn't be primarily driven by liberties, whether it's religious liberty or free speech or whatever. At the end of the day, I, I think this is where the common good people get it exactly right. We're trying to advance and protect and promote the common good. I think it was now three issues ago of national affairs. That, that was the argument that Robbie George and I made with our essay, The Baby and the Bathwater. Right. You don't need to buy into kind of like enlightenment liberal philosophy in which liberty is like the highest good that we're seeking to protect to think that certain classically liberal institutions are actually really important at the service of promoting human flourishing and the common good. And so this essay on religious liberty is, on the one hand, reminding people, don't put all your eggs in the, the religious liberty basket. Religious liberty is one value that's important amongst many, but it's ultimately at the service of religious truth, at the service of goodness. And there the caution is, from more of like a political perspective, is you see a tendency in some people to not want to have to discuss some of the more difficult questions, mm -hmm. questions about the beginning of life, the end of life, questions about gender, gender identity, marriage. 
and they'll just talk about religious liberty, right? <laughs> and you can see religious liberty being used almost as an excuse not to have to talk about the substantive questions. It's always left me scratching my head when I hear people talk about some of the transgender debates, primarily in terms of religious liberty. I'm like, this is not primarily a religious liberty question. It's not a first order religious liberty question. Secular women and girls have all of the same concerns about privacy and safety and equality. And so there's a tendency, I think, of some social conservatives to say, the whole gay marriage thing didn't go well for us. We should just stop discussing these things on the merits and just (laughs) give it to religious liberty. And so part of what the essay is to do is to be a caution against that temptation. Is that what you would say is sort of the source for this? Like the reason why they're failing to make the substantive moral arguments is because they've just historically failed, that that hasn't worked. So now they're taking sort of refuge in religious liberty? I think that could be part of it. That part of it could be a, just an exhaustion, a despair. It didn't work for us last time. Why would it work for us this time? And I think that reads the actual history wrong here. I think if you look at something like the pro-life movement, it's actually a rather instructive case study of simultaneously they've been arguing for religious liberty protections and conscience protections for pro-life doctors and nurses to not have to perform abortions, citizens not to pay for abortions with the Hyde Amendment, while also arguing that that child has a right to life, right? So it's not just that we want to keep our hands clean from abortion. It's also that we think abortion is a public evil. It undermines the public good, the common good, because it undermines that child's inherent dignity, the child's right to life. And so we're going to be arguing on two tracks, right? Trying to overturn Roe v. Wade, trying to institute heartbeat bills, 20-week bills, ultrasound bills, trying to defund Planned Parenthood, all of those things on like the substantive issue of abortion, the right to life, while also saying the Hyde Amendment and the Weldon Amendment are important liberty protections to protect taxpayers from funding abortion in the case of the Hyde, Weldon to protect medical professionals from having to perform or assist at abortions. I think it's entirely premature to say that because we lost the gay marriage issue, we're going to lose the gender identity issue. I think the questions are very different. It may be that the acronym includes LGBT, but I think the T is very, very different than the LGB part. And it's not just someone like me who says this. You're hearing lots of LGB voices mm. saying that the T is different, especially when you consider children and when you consider yeah. some of the medical treatments that are being performed on the bodies of minors. And so I think it would be a huge mistake if conservatives said, look, we're going to lose on this, so let's just protect religious liberty, rather than saying, what are the new coalitions we can form? And we don't have to agree on everything to agree on this particular issue. And we can work across the aisle. We can work with ideologically opposed people on taxes, on trade, on foreign policy, but we agree on gender identity. And I've been trying to do some of that work myself at the Heritage Foundation, you know, hosting self-described radical feminists. One of the (laughs) events I hosted, it was the Baltimore City LGBT commissioner who was kicked off of the commission for saying only women can be lesbians. And they told her that was transphobic. And so, you know, we've been trying to say, look, we don't have to agree on any of the other things that we work on. But if we agree on this issue, let's work together because it's important. here. And when it comes to trans and 
I think even abortion, I can understand what the sort of secular common ground could be with how we could find allies outside of the social conservative world to advance our cause and advance our argument. And I know what that argument sort of sounds like. But when it comes to marriage, let's say, or contraception, I guess I don't know how social conservatives can advance their substantive moral argument without just appealing to scripture or religious authorities, which most Americans no longer recognize. So could you give us a taste of what form that argument could take that would be persuasive to people outside of the social conservative world? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I think that's why kind of from a, especially a generational perspective, why you'll see millennials being more pro-life, but less good on the gay marriage question. I think even to a certain extent, more reasonable on some of the transgender questions, but not as fully reasonable on the gay marriage question. And that's partly because there is a non-religious argument here. There's a natural law argument. Robbie George, Sharif Gurgis, and I made it a decade ago in our Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy article, What is Marriage? That came out in an expanded edition a year later as the book, What is Marriage? The second edition of that book's coming out this summer from Encounter Books. And the basic argument here is it's an Aristotelian argument that communities, institutions, you can think of them based upon the actions that they perform, the goods that they seek, and then the norms or the commitments that govern their life. And that marriage is a comprehensive community because it's comprehensive in those three respects. Comprehensive action that spouses perform, comprehensive good that they're seeking, and then comprehensive norms. That is not going to be readily accessible, persuadable to people who aren't familiar with kind of Aristotelian thinking, right? I mean, when Sharif, <laughs> Robbie, and I were doing this, we didn't think that this was like the PR strategy. We were doing some scholarship, like some actual, like, what's the philosophy of marriage? In the Catholic tradition, you know, John Paul II was famous for doing a theology of the body. And we were saying, look, there also needs to be a philosophy of the body. And faith and reason go together on these things. But a culture that's not attuned to thinking about causation, final causation, formal causation, good, common good, a culture that's primarily focused thinking about rights, especially individual rights, individual liberties, it's going to be hard for these competing philosophical traditions to kind of have conversation and make purchase in a particular individual who's not familiar with both of those traditions. And so I think think you're right in the sense that the philosophical argument for marriage on its own won't be finally persuasive if it's not part of a larger cultural strategy, right? And so for religious communities in particular, it has to be not just to fight for religious liberty, but actually to evangelize, right? It's to actually like spread your faith tradition, faith traditions being repositories of wisdom, right? If you think about how Alistair McIntyre talks about tradition in general, whether it's a philosophical or theological tradition, like these are ongoing conversations that transmit knowledge. Faith communities, churches, synagogues, mosques need to be engaged in that project. That's their kind of like central purpose. It's not to be suing the Obama administration, litigating for the Little (laughs) Sisters of the Fork. Their central purpose for the Little Sisters is to, you know, share Christ's love by taking care of the sick and the elderly and the dying. Right? The right. way in which they evangelize is through a witness of running these homes where they care, care for people as if they're caring for Christ himself. And that's the kind of, to my mind, bread and butter substance of you know, the vision of the good life that faith communities need to be able to 
communicate and to express. And then I think from like within that, you can see how faith and reason go together on a question like marriage, right? It's not just that the Bible says so. And there's a kind of transition to some of these potential compromises that we try to make in the public square. I know you mentioned the fairness for all idea in your piece that was based on a Utah law in 2015. And now there's some legislation at the federal level as well. But I know, I think you have some problems with that. Can you talk a little bit about that compromise and where you think it could go astray? Yeah. So I think that the motivations behind the people working on fairness for all the Utah compromise are impeccable, right? The the disagreement here is not that like, oh, these are sellouts or these are weak people or squishes or anything like that. It's much more of a, we should be looking to find common ground and to find kind of win-win solutions whenever and wherever we can. But the first proposal that comes across our table, we shouldn't necessarily accept as the best that we can hope for. And so I, I think that the the way in which the Fairness for All proposal is structured, where it's sexual orientation and gender identity become a protected class in law, and then there are religious liberty protections and carve-outs to that protected class law, is a misguided way of crafting the compromise. That a better way would be, can we actually define what particular kind of like actions are unjust forms of discrimination and prohibit those activities while not burdening anyone who wants to engage in activities with respect to sexual orientation and gender identity that aren't unjust forms of discrimination. And so I'll give you an example. Title IX of the Education Amendment, so the 1972 law that says no discrimination on the basis of sex in education. It explicitly says, but separate bathrooms and locker rooms and sports teams for boys and girls and men and women isn't discriminatory. So at the same time as they say, you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, which in this context meant you need to have equal educational and athletic opportunities for girls and for women, because historically what it was was that, you know, boys got economics and girls got home economics. Boys got varsity sports and girls got intramural sports. Title IX says, no, you need to have equal opportunities for both. But that doesn't mean everything needs to be co-educational. That doesn't mean co-ed bathrooms. That doesn't mean co-ed sports teams. You can have separate male and female bathrooms, locker rooms, sports teams. That might actually be the very way in which you protect equality because the differences in our bodies as male and female make a difference. Title II, the Public Accommodations Law of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which bans discrimination on the basis of race, had no such distinction because our skin color is irrelevant for what we do in the bathroom, in the locker room, in the sports team. Right? So we don't have, thank God, no longer do we have separate bathrooms or water fountains based on skin color. So when we banned discrimination on the basis of race, we didn't make these distinguishing features on these issues. When we did it on sex, we did because we said bodily differences based on sexual anatomy matter in the bathroom, locker room, et cetera. So now the question is, for sexual orientation and gender identity, could we craft a law that says no unjust discrimination, but fill in the blanks, these aren't forms of unjust discrimination, right? So a doctor who says, I don't prescribe testosterone to females, that's not discriminatory. So you don't need a religious liberty carve out. Everyone is free to decline to do sex reassignment procedures because that's a reasonable disagreement about medicine for people with gender dysphoria. Anyone is free to say, we're not going to discriminate in healthcare for LGBT people, which means you can't deny chemotherapy to someone who's gay. But you don't have to do reassignment procedures, or you don't have to do same-sex adoptions. Mm. That thinking a child deserves a mother and a father, that's not discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. 
That's how I think a compromise, a kind of like fairness for all bill would be on much stronger foundations because it's not relying on a general rule that says what I believe is discriminatory, but I have a religious liberty carve out to discriminate. That's the structural flaw here. Ryan, where are these arguments going to get made? Where should they get made? In the piece you mentioned, right, that there is a role for the more explicit sort of religious liberty case to be made, especially in the courts, because that's where it needs to be made and that's where it's going to be effective. But when we move beyond the sort of legalistic argument for religious liberty and for religious people, where's the space where that argument could best be advanced? That's a really helpful question because at the very beginning, I mentioned that, you know, part of the impetus for the essay was that there's a certain temptation for social conservatives to stop talking about the substantive issues and just talk about religious liberty. But then there's now a competing temptation. And this was the other impetus for writing the essay, which is that some people are seeing this problem and they're just giving up on religious liberty in general, right? And so the idea here is that, oh, religious liberty arguments are for suckers. Religious liberty arguments are for kind of squishes. And so we're not going to do any religious liberty stuff. We're just going to do. And I think here we have to kind of walk and chew gum at the same time. Religious liberty arguments, including the legal arguments about religious liberty, are important because religious liberty is an authentic human right. It's a, it's a real, authentic true part of the common good. And so we want to be defending it. But now we need to say, all right, what are the different vocations? Lawyers should be making legal arguments based upon what the law is to persuade, in the case of the Supreme Court, five out of nine justices. But that doesn't mean that pastors should speak and sound like lawyers. So during the HHS mandate case, it's perfectly fine if the attorneys want to be making RIFRA arguments compelling state interest, least restrictive means possible. Bishops should be talking about the theology of the body, right? They should be using the Little Sisters of the Poor case as an occasion to evangelize, to teach the truth about human sexuality. And that means pundits, public intellectuals should be doing both of those things, right? Saying, look, this is the legal argument that protects the Little Sisters of the Poor's freedom to do X, Y, and Z. But here's why what the Little Sisters of the Poor believe, whether it's about the end of life or about the beginning of life, with contraception and the transmission of life, here's why what they believe is true and good and beautiful, right? And so I think it's a mistake to criticize the lawyers for making the legal arguments. That's their, I think, proper role. You would be doing something wrong to your client if you went into a courtroom with Anthony Kennedy sitting on the bench and you made legal arguments that you knew he was going to reject, right? Because at the end of the day, the right. lawyer's purpose is to you know, win the case. But then someone like me, right? I'm not a litigator. I'm not in a courtroom. I'm not doing that. I want to be making a larger public argument about what's the truth about marriage? What's the truth about the human body with respect to sexual identity and gender identity? And then show how these things come together. That's not so much the national affairs piece, but some of the recent articles that I've had in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy have been trying to do that patchwork of, you know, there's a policy argument, there's kind of a anthropology metaphysics argument, what's the reality of the human person, how do these things go together? Yeah, Ryan, I think that idea of vocations is really interesting. I know also in your piece, you talk about how social conservatives don't really do politics. They don't, you know, have 501c4s or PACs that engage in action on religious liberty and, and other issues of human sexuality. So this is a case where, you know, we also need people in the political realm doing this, which is going to look different than what a bishop, for example, says about theology of the body. Yes, absolutely. This is where I think historically, if you look at the organizations for social conservatives, and especially religious liberty organizations, 
we have law firms, nonprofit law firms like ADF and Beckett and First Liberty that litigate these cases. We have nonprofit think tanks that do kind of some of the scholarship, things like that. We have academics, people like Robbie George, Hadley Arcus, Marianne Glendon, who are professors. And then we have religious leaders, whether it's someone at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops or Russell Moore at the Southern Baptist Convention. And what we don't really have is an NRA or a club for growth, right? Think about what those two organizations do to advance, in the case of the NRA, the Second Amendment protections, in the case of Club for Growth, kind of economic freedom. There's no club for virtue. There's no kind of national virtue association (laughs) on NRA, right? And what those groups do is they don't just ask people to do the right thing because it's the right thing, right? They get involved in the nitty gritty of campaigns, right? They, They try to take scalps by defeating people who are bad on their issues, and they try to reward heroes by protecting people who take courageous stands that then may cost them electorally. And when you look at like, wow, why does it for a certain political party, why do so many members vote in lockstep on these issues, you know, Second Amendment issues and economic issues, is that there's a consequence if they go against it. We don't have anything like that, to my knowledge, that really has like a stick we have carrots, right? We try, but, but we don't have the stick. And I, and I think that's something that social conservatives really need to think about. I first learned this way of seeing things from Maggie Gallagher like a decade ago. She was saying, look, we are always just asking people to do the right thing because it's the right thing, but we're not rewarding them when they do it. And we're not penalizing them when they do the wrong thing. And so they know that they can get away with doing the wrong thing. Whereas if you vote against Second Amendment in some way, right? So you vote in a way that the NRA doesn't like, they're going to make life difficult for you. That's the give and take of politics. And we need to engage in that. Ryan, a rejoinder, I know some people would say, oh, well, then you're, you run the risk of politicizing religion at that point, that you're not worried about saving souls anymore. You're just worried about political victories. How do you respond to that critique of that? Well, I mean, so I think you have to be concerned with both, right? So I don't want the bishops doing this, right? I, I want the <laughs> right, bishops right, right. running the church administering the sacraments, teach, govern, sanctify is kind of the three vocational callings for a bishop. But I think lay people, Catholic lay people, evangelical lay people, Jewish lay people, Muslim, Mormon, I mean, the whole gamut should be engaged in political action because we should care both about the common good of the church and the common good of the polity. And I think here we can say, look, we disagree about God, Catholics, other types of Protestants, Mormons, Muslims, Jews, like, We have serious disagreements about God, but we might have certain common agreements about marriage or about gender identity or about, you know, fill in the blank. And we can work together at a political level to advance the common good on those questions. And those are the sorts of things. We do a lot of it in the nonprofit world, right? So we have state policy think tanks and, you know, a think tank like Heritage at the national level but they're all educative, right? If you look at like what a state policy think tank can do, it can just provide education on the issues. It can't engage in that direct political action the way that a C4 or a super PAC, something like that can. And I think that's something that, especially as these realignment conversations are taking place, it's something mm-hmm. that social conservatives should very much be engaged in doing. So part of making that argument that can extend to incorporate sort of Muslims and Mormons and Jews and Catholics all sort of under the same sort of coalition would be to advance the argument that there's actually a fundamental good in not just 
the details of our causes, but in religious liberty itself, like a, an actual relationship with God, that that should be understood as one of the common goods that ought to be protected. But we live in a very and increasingly secularized society in which that argument really isn't persuasive to people. So I'm, I'm curious how you would go about making that argument to an increasingly secular society. Yeah. So if I remember correctly, towards the end of the National Affairs essay, I quote from Robert Wilkins' recent book. Robert Wilkins is a historian of Christianity, and he had written a book on the Christian origins of religious liberty. The argument that, as he was putting forward, was that you know, for religion to be authentic, it needs to be voluntary, that a coerced relationship with God isn't a real relationship with God. It doesn't have the value, the merit, the worth. And so for that relationship to actually be real, it needs to be free. And what I argued at the end of the essay was that, well, there's actually a missing, that might be the major premise of the syllogism, but there's a missing minor premise, which is that relationship with God is good, that religion is good. That harmony with the divine is praiseworthy, meritorious, like something to be pursued. And if you put those two premises together, that harmony, friendship, love with God is something good to be pursued, that for harmony, friendship, love of God to be real, to be authentic, it needs to be voluntary, then you get kind of the syllogism for religious liberty. Historically, it was the voluntary premise that had been under criticism. And people said, no, you couldn't use coercion to compel people back to the, to the faith. In our day, as you just pointed out, it strikes me much more that it's the religion itself is good part of the syllogism that is under assault. And I think here, I take a lesson from Pope Emeritus Benedict, that it's not going to be the arguments of the philosophers and the theologians and he says that as like a world-class theologian, right? A world-class <laughs> intellectual saying, it won't be my argument. He said, it's going to be the beauty and the holiness of the artists and the saints. The way in which you persuade, especially a culture that seems to be post-Judeo-Christianity, like post-revealed biblical Abrahamic religion, is not by like hitting them over the head with the latest apologetics book. <laughs> it's by inviting them into a tradition, right? Inviting them to a Vespers service, inviting them to a beautiful liturgy, inviting them to sit for evening prayer, something like that, so that they can experience some of that kind of like the sublime, the beauty, the kind of like, it's hard sometimes to even articulate it, right? I'm struggling for words here. They can have a direct encounter with God. That's, I think, going to be our best long-term strategy. There are other arguments that can be made about like the social utility value of religion, but I think those largely fall on deaf ears. If you're yeah. like, well, wait, religious congregations, like they're running the soup kitchens and they're running the hospitals. For a certain person that's already given up on kind of the intrinsic goodness of religion, the instrumental benefits of religion, they're going to be, to my mind, very quick to say, oh, but the state could pick those up. Right? If we don't have Catholic hospitals, we can have government-run hospitals. Mm, if we don't yeah. have, and so I think it, it really needs to be an invitation to experience for yourself some of those intrinsic goods to religious practice, with the most intrinsic being relationship with God, encounter with God, friendship, love of God. Yeah, Ryan, I was going to ask you a final question about concrete steps, but I think you kind of already answered it there with the invitation to a tradition and beauty and a relationship, right? Yeah. And, and you know, what's interesting right now, while we're all still kind of like sheltering at home, it seems like a lot of people who, the risks here, one is that people who used to go to physical in-place house of worship, when this is all lifted, won't be going back because they'll say, eh, I didn't miss it that much. 
And that's a serious risk to my mind. But there's also a potential benefit here is that there are people logging into online church services and online prayer meetings who never would have stepped foot into a physical church or synagogue Hmm. or something like that. And they might be discovering something for the first time. And so there's a there's an opportunity here of how do you translate that into kind of like a long-term living practice of the faith. That's good. A rare note of optimism in these days. Thanks, Darby. We appreciate that. This is a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Of course. Yeah, happy to do it. If you'd like to read Ryan's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers obtain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Ricochet. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.